Welcome to episode 61 of the Becoming Human podcast. In this episode, I sit down with Zach Bitter. He's an endurance athlete, coach, and nutrition specialist. Zach set a new American record for fastest 100-mile time of just under 12 hours. That's a little over a 7-minute mile for 100 miles. That's an incredible amount of effort. However, it's within most of our grasp through gradual training fueled by excitement. For more on Zach and his podcast, head over to ZachBitter.com. I'll leave it in the show notes for you guys. If you like the show, please rate, review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you listen to this and share it with a friend. I really admire Zach's pursuit of excitement. He diligently works hard, and he was a joy to talk to. You have the opportunity to, to run a lot of trails then for track or is it a, a bit of a distance uh you know i've got some pretty good trails just right out the door um mm-hmm. we got this spot called the phoenix mountain preserve that's got some pretty decent trails if i want something that's got like a real sustained climb of like two three plus miles like straight up and down or something like that, i've got to you know, drive maybe a half hour or so but um yeah no it's uh it's it's nice relative to what I've had previously in the past. I'd have to drive quite a bit to get any type of trail. So uh, it is nice mm-hmm. having some real easy access points and then some ones that are a little further, but not too bad if you want to kind of get into a specific type of trail that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. So you did that on the 100-mile race this weekend. How'd that go? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It was, you know, my, my goal going in was going to try to kind of get the, into the top 10 because uh, I get to a, an automatic spot back the following year. So I kind of Ooh. moved up the field most of the day, but I ended up in 11th. So I came one spot shy of that goal. But um, it was it was a lot of fun. It was it was interesting for me because it was probably it was the first hundred miler that I've really had access to good trails to kind of mm-hmm. prepare for the race real specifically. So I was a little bit. Uh, a little, little uncertain as to what to expect exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there were spots where I felt like I was pretty strong on comparative to previous, uh, previous races or previous times in areas like that. And then there were some spots where I thought maybe I'd be a little stronger and wasn't. So mm-hmm. it's definitely a good kind of template to kind of help build off of if I want to try to do that race mm-hmm. again and kind of have a little more of a clear directive as to kind of what to, how to approach the training and stuff like that and what to focus on. Some people like to just always do different races and just kind of experience as many as they can. And I like that to some degree, but I also like returning to races because then you can kind of see like where you made progress or kind of how you improved or didn't improve and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I'll definitely be doing some more trail type stuff going forward now that I have better access to that. Uh, but I'll also probably keep doing some of the flat stuff too, because I do enjoy kind of the build up to some of those races as well, where they're kind of just pure running races. <laughs> that's, and that's something that I, um, battle with myself, whereas like I'll do, uh, first of all, like why am I competing? Cause I find myself just ending up there, whether it's like jujitsu or running. And, um, and when I, when I lose, it's usually personally an opportunity to learn more about myself and kind of geek out. And, and figure out what my strengths and weaknesses are. Um, however, I do understand the appeal to, you know, doing new races every time because then you can, for me, it's that sense of adventure. Um, what brings you out to like the trails? Do you, um, do you have, you said you have a preference over like uh, more flat races than, uh, backcountry races? Uh, yeah, you know, it, some of it was more or less just because when I started ultra running, I was living in Wisconsin and, I had access to a lot of just flat kind of city streets for the most part. Um, and then the trails I did have were very, very modest compared to like what you'd see out west or even out east. So um, some of it was just because I knew if I wanted to kind of reach full potential, I probably needed to be doing races that were closely aligned with the type of training environment I had access to. Uh, and kind of through that process, I definitely got intrigued and interested in those type of races. Uh like doing like world 100k championships on the roads has always been a lot of fun um uh kind of chasing records on like 100 mile and timed event type stuff is is always kind of kind of fun and you know one thing that i found is 
is kind of interesting with a lot of the flatter ultra stuff is it, it's a little easier to kind of gauge improvement um, because sometimes the terrain is so specific and the environment is so similar from year to year. It's There's not a whole lot of change other than your current fitness level compared to the year before, mm-hmm. whereas some of these other races, like the one I just did this weekend, Western States, for example, like uh, it got up to, I think, somewhere around 106 to 110 degrees in some of the spots. And, uh, yeah, so it gets toasty. And that one is typically pretty hot at least. But, you know, if you get a day like this last weekend compared to the record lows on the course where they've had a year once where it was in the 70s. So that's a pretty big difference. So it gets a little more difficult to kind of compare year-to-year efforts. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, like, sometimes, too, if you had, if there was a really harsh winter, like, last year, they've got a bunch of snow in the high country section of that course. So you find, like, the runners are having to go through, like, 10 miles of snow before they get to, like, the real good, clean trail. Whereas this year, you know, the snow had been melted for quite some time out there. So uh, it was a lot more runnable in some of those high country areas. So there's just a lot of different variables that can change quite quite a bit more drastically in some of those backcountry races. So it's a little more hard to kind of gauge, I think, improvement um, other than kind of just your position in the field, I guess. If there's similar competition, you can maybe gauge by that to some degree. Um, but, yeah, you know, going forward, I think I'm kind of in a spot now where I have access to basically everything. I've got plenty of good flat road training stuff and then uh, plenty of good trails. So to me, that's just kind of – sets me up to be able to kind of break my year maybe into two groups or just kind of chase what I'm feeling most excited about at the time. So, like, if I feel, like, really excited about a build-up for a 100-miler on the trails, I'll have access to that type of stuff. Or if I get really excited to kind of chase a specific time or something on a flat 100-miler, I kind of have good access to the stuff I would need for that, too. So, you know, that's one thing I try to be cognizant of is to do a hundred miler or, or almost any ultra for that matter, like to your fullest, you have to, I think, be really excited about it or the training will get more tedious and less enjoyable. So, uh, being able to set yourself up to kind of enjoy the buildup and the, the, the training experience is always, I think, the best way to get yourself in the right mental, mental, uh, frame for the, for the race itself. Do you do you plan your year out based on um, your level of excitement for things? Is that what guides um, the races that you choose? Yeah, a lot of times. Sometimes it comes down to a little bit of opportunity too. Like with this, like with Western States, like you either have to get in through like the lottery or win your way in through a race or have a sponsor spot or something like that. So sometimes it's more of a matter of here's the opportunities I have this year. Which one seems like the best fit? Um, in, in other years, like sometimes it's a little more flexible where, uh, the races you're kind of targeting are all pretty easy to get into. And then you can kind of, uh, be a little more, you don't have to maybe make a decision quite as early. Uh, but that's usually how I do it. I'll, I'll usually, what I'll do is I'll pick maybe one A race for each half of the year. So maybe two a year, sometimes three if I feel like I've got an extra race kind of in the tank or if I have one that didn't really go well and I feel like I still have um, have some energy to kind of target another one. But more or less, I'm usually targeting like an A race in either the fall, winter, and then in the kind of spring, summer time frame. And then what I'll do is I'll try to trickle in a few other ones that are kind of like lower level races that I'm not necessarily going to push all out for but use as kind of long training runs. Um, and that kind of sets me up to be able to kind of really focus all my specific training on uh, an event and get really ready for it, but also still enjoy some of the other events around that, uh, that I'm maybe not going to necessarily peak for, but still would like to go to and, uh, and, and run them. Mm-hmm. What are your goals when you're running an event and you're not going to peak for it? Like, is it, do you uh, usually, run the course as easy as you can? Um, not as easy as I can. I usually what it is, is like, there's actually a couple goals. Like the nice thing about signing up for an event for that is you kind of go through the paces of what it's like to kind of get ready for a race. So like 
you know, you get ready for, like, what do I do the night before? Like, how do I get, like, any gear or logistics set up so that you kind of practice that? So then when you do get to the key race or the A race, you kind of done it a few times so it doesn't feel, like, quite as nerve-wracking. Um, but from a from a training standpoint, really, it's, uh, in my opinion, a little bit of an easier way to do a long run. It seems a lot a lot more uh fun for me to go like say go to a 50k race that's close to that near nearby and and do that as opposed to kind of going out and running 50ks uh on a training run by myself so um sometimes that's right but usually what i'll do for those is i'll treat them kind of as a long workout and i'll kind of hold myself accountable to not push past like maybe like 80 percent or so full capacity um and that way I know I'm not going to need a whole bunch of recovery time from it, just what I would normally have from a big, like a long workout. Uh, yeah. So that's usually what my, my goal is. And, you know, sometimes it gets, uh, it can get a little more interesting depending on how the field is. If there's some competitive runners there, then like, um, sometimes you have to be a little more, a little more, uh, strict about making sure you don't overreach if someone goes out fast. Uh, but you know, it can be fun too, to mix up a little bit and, and race some people if it's not too far past, like kind of that 80% threshold and, you know, that kind of just adds a little excitement to it too. Mm-hmm. I imagine that's a good exercise to be in if you had to like tone it down if someone's redlining and you don't want to match them because you know you're going to have like too long of a recovery pace. I imagine, mm-hmm. um, at least for some, you know, there'd be at least some ego pull there. And to be able to exercise uh, overcoming that or not following through with that would be beneficial in competition. Yeah, you know, it, people kind of fall on two sides of that. Like some people won't do like tune-up races like that or like long workout races like that because they know like they'll get too competitive and if it comes down to it, they're going to push as hard as they can to win even if it's not really in their best interest from the training training phases of things. Um but for me, the way I usually set it up is I kind of try to just make sure in the early stages I go easy when it's a little less, like, enticing to kind of push hard. And that way, if I spend, say, like, the first two-thirds of it running relatively easy, if it happens to be kind of a grouper or, like, a couple people that are close at the end, then I kind of allow myself to push a little harder at the end. So then if it does come down to that, I can kind of still get that more competitive type feel or race type situation, which is, you know, kind of an enjoyable place to be as well. Mm-hmm. I, I do find it a lot of fun. I was surprised by how competitive that I was because I was generally very shy when I was a kid, um, but competing is a blast, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you, you see some, you see some silent assassins when it comes to sports. Sometimes I think you get some people that are kind of timid or shy, but when you get them out on a, on a, a competitive adventure they're they're tough to beat there's a few of those in, in ultra running for sure <laughs> <laughs> so how do you gauge your effort level um is it intuitive or do you use like a heart rate monitor um i've done both i i don't use heart rate monitor as much for those type of workouts just because um depending on how long it is because you know things like cardiac drift and things like that sometimes can make it a little less reliable, I think, after the first couple hours. And one thing I usually try to work on in my training is ultimately when I start putting myself in, like, kind of race day scenarios, uh, I'm trying to really get fine-tuned, like, this rate of perceived exertion so that I kind of have an idea, like, how hard I can push and um, in certain spots without necessarily going too hard or, you know, what feels like or what ends up being too easy. Um, so a lot of times it's a little bit of, uh, of practice to try to get that right. But more often than not, like I've done enough workouts where I can get a pretty good idea of like, you know, what is too hard and what is too easy and kind of what's just right. And then, then you just can kind of dial it up more or less when it comes to the race itself. There have been benefits in your day-to-day life outside of, uh, running or athletics, um, the ability to understand like your perceived exertion or your energy levels uh in just like day-to-day stuff yeah yeah you know i think like the most applicable thing applicable thing for like day-to-day stuff is just kind of 
you get really fine-tuned as to what it feels like to be kind of like optimized versus like kind of feeling a little little flat. So like I think for me, like just since I paid quite a bit of close attention to nutrition and recovery and stuff, I noticed little things that kind of maybe would slide under the radar for people who aren't necessarily paying attention to that. So I think I can maybe catch some red flags earlier that way. Um, you know, it's always interesting to me, like you'll, you'll find people sometimes who they'll, they'll make a life change that's positive for their health and they'll be so shocked at how much better they feel. And they'll always say like, you know, I didn't really realize that I wasn't feeling good until I realized what feeling good actually is. So like they almost they kind of normalize like this subpar feeling and then that becomes normal. And until they kind of optimize things, they don't really realize how much of a benefit they could do by, you know, making some of those positive health changes. So I guess um, it certainly gives me plenty of opportunity to kind of gauge that stuff and uh, recognize what it feels like to feel really, really good and then feel really, really bad and then everything in between. And you just get a little, a few more data points, I suppose. When I would eat poorly, I'd, you know, I'd feel a little bit bad. I didn't notice it very much, but I would always be, you know, talked down to myself in my head. Um, as opposed to getting into athletics more intensely and doing competition, I realized, oh, this doesn't make me feel good. Why would I eat something that doesn't make me feel good? And I found a way to fall in love with um, healthier options without beating myself up in the process. So I'm curious what that looks like for you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, when you kind of get things figured out for yourself in terms of, like, what nutrition is going to work to kind of get you to feel your best, it does, it becomes a lot easier to kind of stick to it because, you know, like you said, it's, you can, you start, to, it's probably psychological to some degree, but you start to like kind of connect those dots and then you realize like if you just sit and think about it before you do it when it comes to like eating something that would maybe make you feel, feel rough the next day is like, is the like handful of seconds of, uh, you know, like satisfaction you get from like, you know, eating, junk food going to outweigh like feeling good for the first half of the day tomorrow versus feeling really crummy. And <laughs> when you kind of balance it on a scale like that, it's pretty obvious what the right choice is. And, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, life happens too. And it's like, you know, you don't want to necessarily be, um, you know, like avoiding things to the degree where you're stressing out about it either. So, I usually, you know, I'm pretty good about nutrition and stuff, but there's definitely points in the year where, like, I'm not training quite as hard or I don't have a race coming up or something like that. And, you know, if I you go hang out with friends and stuff like that, I'm not going to be as concerned about how I'm going to feel the next day. But it's all kind of like it's all kind of like timing with that stuff, too, I guess. That makes sense. When my son asks if we can go to the farmer's market so we can get a cookie, I often find myself indulging in it more than I am trying to avoid it. <laughs> yeah. I, I've had to uh, question, you know, my choices and exactly how far I wanted to take it because like, there were some experiences that I'd miss out on. And just like you said, sometimes when you're friends, you know, it, it is worth it. However, that's like a, a cause and effect analysis as opposed to, you know, beating yourself up and trying to fit yourself in a box and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of um, eating habits do you do? Do you follow, like, a high-fat approach or a high-carb? Yeah, I do. You know, I've been doing a high-fat approach in varying degrees for about the last seven years. And um, the way I kind of explain it is it's, it's a high-fat approach year-round, but it's periodized depending on where I'm at a training. You know, one of the things I find really interesting about endurance athletes and then extreme endurance athletes, probably even a little bit more to some degree, uh, is that if you pick out like a week during their year, like a couple random weeks, you might see like completely different lifestyles. So like if you picked out this week for my, for my year, it might look like I'm not much more active than just someone who's, you know, working a desk job and working out maybe a couple times a week because I'm basically prioritizing recovery um, this week. Whereas if you pick out a week during my peak training phase, I might be working out close to 20 hours between running and gym and stuff like that. Um, 
So, like, for me, it's, like, it doesn't really make sense to put the exact same nutritional protocol down for each of those weeks. I think, like, those lifestyles are drastically different. So, like, peak training, you know, I might be metabolizing two to three times my resting metabolic rate some days, whereas on recovery weeks, like post-race, like this week, there's days where I'm probably just burning my resting metabolic rate because I'm not doing much but sitting around. Um so the the way I kind of look at that is I view carbohydrates as kind of like a tool. They're like a really high, kind of high-octane, really fast-acting fuel source. So I think when you put your body in the right position, those things work very well and they work very efficiently. Um, and you don't need nearly as many as what, you know, some people may think. Uh, so what I do is I, when I'm in the recovery phase or a lower training phase, I'll go super low on carbohydrates, like ketogenic low. Um, and that really kind of sets the stage, I guess, or the foundation for having a really good fat-burning engine. So then when I kind of get back into training uh, full steam, if I bring back a little more carbohydrate, and for me, usually that's somewhere in the neighborhood of around 20% during some of my bigger training days, um, then I can kind of still have uh, be fat-adapted enough to take advantage of that. Uh, fuel substrate, but then also have access to, you know, that faster stuff if I have to, like, do a fast workout or make a surge during a race or something like that. So uh, I would say, like, over the course of the year, if you averaged everything out, I'd probably average somewhere around 10% carbohydrate when you add in, like, the higher-carb weeks or days and the really low-carb ones. So it's um, it's a pretty close to ketogenic but I don't focus on kind of being in ketosis all the time or trying to be like in ketosis 24 seven. Um, I don't mind coming out of ketosis to nail a workout. Uh, and what I've noticed is since I've been doing it for as long as I have, I tend to be able to get back into ketosis really quickly. Um, I don't measure that stuff a whole lot anymore. I do from time to time just because I, why don't you, um, yeah, well, a couple of reasons. One, I don't necessarily think that we have good, uh, good like metrics to aim for for athletes. I think like mm-hmm. someone's like level of blood ketones in say just someone who's living a more traditional lifestyle is going to look a little different than someone who's you know, working out as much as I am. So I don't necessarily want to like make a goal with something I don't have a whole lot of. Uh, info as to whether that is actually a goal that's going to be beneficial for me. Um, so, like, what I do is I kind of – I operate more with, like, a field test because I think that's going to be more informative to how I'm going to feel during a race. So one thing I try to do with myself and some of the folks I'm coaching with that type of a program is if you can do, like, your weekly long run uh, with just water and electrolytes and have pretty consistent energies at that – that moderately low, uh, like, intensity for a very long time, then you're probably fat-adapted enough. Uh, so then it's like I don't necessarily need to try to push that any further. At that point, I think it's time to focus on getting really prepared for the specific workouts that I'm going to do. And, you know, if that means bringing back a little bit of carbohydrates, if that's fine. Um, I like to kind of keep what they call, like, metabolically flexible so that I can – kind of move in and out very easily, and I think that's probably the most efficient way to go. When you're doing those long runs, right, and you try to see if they can go for water and electrolytes, um, how do you gauge um, what kind of data do you use in the sense that um, are they hungry or is there a lack of energy? Yeah, more lack of energy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, like, if I had, if, if I was, like, working on my own program or with someone else and they did that run and they said, I felt great the first like three hours, but the last hour I was just dragging. I could barely even run. You know, I felt like dizzy and stuff like that. Then we're probably not, unless they messed up the electrolytes or hydration or something like that. Um, we're probably not as bad adapted as maybe I would want. Um, so then it means we just have to kind of keep working on that for a little bit. Uh, but if you go out and you do it and you have like, consistent energy levels where you feel pretty smooth that that was like lower moderate kind of intensities for a really long time a lot of times people say like it was uh 
I felt like I could run all day and like, you know, you don't really get a whole lot of hunger pangs and you just feel like you can keep moving with, and, and food is almost like not even on, not even on your mind. You know, that's a pretty good sign to me that your body's utilizing fat efficiently enough that it's not like, it's not going, it's not freaking out if you don't have, you know, a gel every hour or something like that. So, um, I find that kind of a way to test things a little better than trying to just hit a certain number on a blood ketone or something like that. And I find it interesting because it goes back to that um, idea of gauging how you feel and understanding your body's uh, what signals. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think especially in the sport of ultramarathon running and certainly when you get into, like, the distances of 100 miles and further, I think that's so important because – you're just essentially what you're doing is you're constantly like getting feedback from your body and deciding what to do with that feedback. So if you can really understand like what feels good and what feels like too much or doesn't feel right, you can get good at making adjustments mid race because with like a hundred miler, it's really not a question of like if something's going to go different or go wrong or happen that's unexpected it's more of a question of when that's going to happen. So then it comes down to kind of like, how do you respond to that? And I think the guys and gals who do the best at hundred miles uh, and ultra marathons are the ones who've gotten really good at recognizing, okay, this isn't what I expected here. What do I do to kind of right the ship as opposed to just, okay, that went wrong. I'm going to dwell on that and I'm going to fix it on that. And that's going to make the rest of this, this race kind of go poorly as well. Um, so I do think, yeah, I do think it kind of fits fits into that mold, or like kind of you kind of work that you work that kind of, I guess, mental system uh, to be able to kind of do that a little more intuitively when you're out there on on some of the key races. What are fat sources or or and carbohydrate carbohydrate sources that you try to avoid? That I try to avoid. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, yeah, fat sources, I try to avoid a lot of, like, kind of vegetable oils or seed oils. Um, you know, some of those kind of more industrialized, like, really, really omega-6 heavy seed oils and stuff are ones that I think are uh, very much tied to inflammation. So those type of things that are oxidized very easily in heat, um, they tend not to necessarily cooperate very well. Whereas, like, you get something that's a little more stable, like a saturated fat um, or even a monounsaturated fat, you know, those are going to be ones that are going to hold up a little more and less likely to get um, – to become, like, kind of more or less rancid. Uh, mm-hmm. So those – I try to stay away from, like, the like the seed oils and that type of stuff, the industrialized stuff. For carbs, um, the ones I avoid are mostly, like – a lot of like kind of the grains and uh some of the like processed sugar stuff. Um I'll use like an engineered fuel source during a race in some of the bigger workouts, but not a lot during like you know, just as like a daily staple, I guess, you could say. Um so yeah, those are kind of the ones I stay away from. I, I try to for the the carb sources I found that work the best for me tend to be like sweet potatoes, so like root vegetables. Um Berries, melons, raw honey, those are kind of some of the go-tos that when I am taking some carbohydrate in, I'll go for that. Um, and in the fat sources, I try to get most of my fat from, like, really fatty cuts of meat, but I'll just use, like, clarified butter, um, some coconut oil, uh, stuff like that, um, heavy whipping cream from time to time uh, to kind of, you know, get some of what I would consider, like, really good healthy fats in. Mm-hmm. Do you uh, count your calories or anything like that, or more is it a more an intuitive approach? It's very much intuitive now. I definitely started out counting it just because I was kind of curious as to what was going on and you know how things may change or not change, you know, based on kind of like what I was doing. But once I kind of got an idea or got a good feel of like what is you know what's enough for this type of a training block or what's too little then I kind of just am able to go a little more intuitively. And I think once people do really get their nutrition dialed in, that's kind of like the end game is to make it intuitive because then you're not kind of sitting there like just counting things out and stressing out about how much or how little you're eating and and things like that. And 
you know, I think ultimately if your nutrition plan is working well for you, your body will tell you when you're hungry. Um, and it, you'll feel satisfied when you're not. So you don't run into this issue where, like, you're full, you ate enough, but for whatever reason you still want to eat or still feel hungry. So, you know, after kind of playing around with stuff for, for quite a while within, you know, my own, my own nutrition plan, that's, uh, gotten a little bit easier. Some people that I talk to who run, uh, ultra marathons, they'll tell me that it is the most insufferable, painful thing that they've ever experienced. Is that the same experience for you? <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, uh, you know, I wasn't like world class or even like national class at like sub ultra marathon distances at any point in my life, but I did compete in high school and cross country uh, or cross country and track in high school and college. So I kind of have an idea of at least what it's like to push yourself to the limit at some of those shorter distances as well. And really it's like the way I describe it is like they're all hard and they all can be very taxing but it's just like a different type of taxing and fatigue. Whereas like these shorter distances, like five Ks, 10 Ks, it's like, it's over quick, but boy, does it hurt when you're doing it. And ultra marathons, it's more of a, like a, like a slow dull, like kind of almost pain or misery where it's a, I think a lot of it ends up becoming mental. Cause when you think about it, like you're, if you're out, if you have a race that's going to take you 20 hours to finish, and you're 14 hours into it, you know, chances are you're feeling pretty, pretty tired and pretty beat down, but then you still have six hours to go. So like, it's not like you're getting close or anything like that. So it kind of becomes this, like, how long can I push through this dull pain? And uh, a lot of times, like when you find yourself in a position where you do push through a lot of that at a, a pretty high rate, um, you can find yourself pretty mentally and physically fatigued afterwards because you just ask quite a bit from yourself, both mentally and physically. Um, and I think, you know, it's interesting. I would say most people in, in the ultra marathon community, you know, they'll finish a race or something like that and you'll hear them say, I'm never doing this again, or I hate this. And then three or four days later, after they had a chance to kind of relax and reflect, reflect on if they're <laughs> online looking for their next one. <laughs> and so you, sometimes you got to take what they say with a grain of salt. But um, yeah, there's there's something there's some draw to that as well, I guess. <laughs> I've been trying to understand it and unpackage it for myself because I've had races where I've wanted to turn around uh, when I was first starting, and I would do it anyways. I, I haven't had a DNF yet, um, but there was just the appeal of like, can I really do this? Like, <laughs> it drew mm -hmm. me in. Yeah. Well, and that's what I think draws people into going further in distance, too. Like, you'll have someone who at one point in their life probably never imagined they would ever run an ultra marathon, even at its shortest distances. And then they do that, and then it's like, well, if I can run 50K, I wonder if I can do 50 miles. And then, you know, then it's like, then I wonder if I can do 100 kilometers. Then I wonder if I can do 100 miles. And then you find yourself kind of almost like trying to seek that unknown or kind of find out, like, how far can I go? Or in some cases, okay, I can go that far. Now how fast can I do it in? So it really does have a lot of kind of unknown to it, I think, especially from the individual side of things where you start just getting really curious as to what you can kind of, what you can go through in order to find what your, your body's kind of capable of. Since you started running, has your relationship with discomfort changed? Um, I think it's changed in the sense that, like, I just know that it's coming a little more, or you can kind of anticipate a little bit. Uh, so I don't think, I don't know that it's changed in necessarily a, in a way that would be like, oh, this doesn't hurt as bad anymore because I've experienced it so many times. I think if you're just more knowledgeable about kind of what you're getting yourself into, and you kind of know a little more about like, like, okay, this is something that will pass eventually versus this is something that's really wrong and I'm doing something wrong and I better, I better adjust or, or fix it. Or if it's a potential injury, you know, maybe potentially stop depending on what your goals are after that race. So, um, yeah, I think, 
uh, you know, sometimes it's it's interesting because I think there's a little bit of like, uh, um, you know, kind of like ignorance is bliss with some of the stuff when you haven't done it before because you don't necessarily know how bad it can hurt, and sometimes that's good, but it also can be shocking if you're not ready for it when it does come. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I think. I think experience is ultimately good with that, but I don't know that it necessarily makes it any easier. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because I suppose even when I like step into a cold shower, it hasn't gotten any easier. I just know what to expect, so I'm not gasping for air mm-hmm. right when I walk into the cold. Um, that's interesting. So when you're trying yeah. to pursue – yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, I, the cold showers are an interesting one to me because I feel like when you kind of get in a routine with them, it's like you mm-hmm. said, you kind of get, you know what is coming. And then as soon as you decide to take a couple of days off from it, though, then that next one back is like, ah, oh, <laughs> here we go again. <laughs> so, um, That's something I've been struggling with is, is how to uh, change it from a, a situational experience to a state experience. Cause I thought that it would help me um, be able to manage my mind better when I'm going through, like, intense workout sessions because it's difficult to manage your mind when you eat spicy things or when you take a cold shower or even during, like, high mm-hmm. heat. However, you're right. Right when you stop, um, it's not an altered trait. It's just an altered state because it can go away over time. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, when you're pursuing these um, these records, uh, like you did for you ran the 100 mile in the fastest time, correct? Yeah, so I have um, the American record for 100 miles, and then the world record for distance run in 12 hours. What did that? What does that look like when you're preparing for it? Do you um, go into it saying that I can work harder than the other person, or are you? have, like, an edge over them? Um, where yeah. does personal belief come from? You know, where it kind of started was in 2013, I had really kind of started trying out some more. It was, that was probably the first year where I really started to focus on kind of road or really flat, like, really flat ultra marathons. Um, and I did had done a 50-miler, uh, like, just kind of on a whim, like 13 days after what was supposed to be my A race that year. And that 50 mile went really well considering I had less than two weeks after that other race. I ended up running it in five hours and 12 minutes. And um, that kind of got me excited about, well, what am I capable of if I can kind of do that more or less on a whim? And I was looking at this event called the Desert Solstice Track Invitational, which occurs in December every year in Phoenix. Um, and the American record at the time for a hundred miles was 11 hours and 59 minutes. And my thought was, well, if I can do 50 miles in five hours and 12 minutes, and it wasn't even the race I was peaking for, I could probably do like, you know, a five hour and 45 minute 50 mile on, on a flat surface. And then if I can even come close to, replicating that for one more than I'm under, you know, the American record. So I I think I'm not sure if that was naive or not, but like <laughs> um <laughs> it was enough it was enough to convince me that I should go out at, you know, just a little bit ahead of American record pace. And that day I ended up running a hundred miles in eleven hours and forty seven minutes. So after that I kinda had a benchmark of what I was capable of and then it was kind of a question of well how much faster can I go? So, you know, since then I've ran it again and done it in eleven hours and forty minutes and um for me one thing I've been kind of looking at is there the world record for hundred miles is eleven hours and twenty eight minutes, so I've got about twelve minutes from that. So it's like what do I have to do to kind of shave 12 minutes off my best performance so far and um, to kind of see see if I can get down that way. I mean, ultimately, I just want to find out how fast I can do it, like whether I break that record or go well under it or never get close to it again is, isn't, is like, necessarily life-changing for me. It's 
it's kind of back to what we talked about before a little bit. There's that curiosity of like, well, what are you personally capable of, um, you know, given the right circumstances? So it's just really kind of an interesting thing for me to kind of plan that build up for it and try to really get yourself ready to make an attempt at, um, you know, running any, any time that seems either almost unachievable or just barely achievable. Did you have any uncertainty going into that? Um, and what was the self-talk or coping mechanisms that helped you through? Yeah, you know, there's definitely, I think, always some uncertainty because you you just know, like, things could go wrong or you question, like, did I do enough work? Did I do this right? But a lot of times then you kind of have to step back when you have those thoughts and look at, okay, what did I do and, and recognize that I did is, I did everything I can to put myself in position for this, and now it's just, you know, a matter of trying it out and finding out. And if you if you get it, great. And if you don't, then, you know, hopefully you'll learn something that can move you forward down the road. So, um, you know, during the during the one where I ran 11 hours and 40 minutes, uh, that one was really interesting because I was targeting 11:28, and I was on pace for a good chunk of the day, and it was more or less the last 20 miles of that race where I my pace started to fall off enough where it wasn't going to be something where I was going to break the world record, but I would likely still break my own American record. And at that point, I think it's it's something of, you, you almost need to have more than one kind of goal with a race like that because if you go in there with, like, one goal where it's like if I can't get 11.28 – it's not worth it, then as soon as I'm off, then I'm going to be given up. So um, kind of having like a couple of purposes. So it's something, if your primary goal isn't isn't going to happen, you still have something to kind of keep you going. And that kind of helps you stay stay more or less positive as opposed to kind of finding yourself in a negative, a negative mindset that's going to make it even more miserable and potentially end your day early. Mm-hmm. I imagine if you the less experiences that you have to dwell on throughout the year and wallow in, um, the better so that you can focus on what you're saying before is the things that excite you. Yeah, mm-hmm, for sure. And then, you know, that's ultimately kind of the direction I'll have people go who ask me like, well, what should I do? What race should I train for? Or more often than not, it's usually, well, I have like a few different things I could pick from. Which one do I do? Uh, and my advice is always like, well, let's look at what it would take to train for each one of these, and then we'll decide which training program is going to keep you the most motivated, the most excited, and the most fulfilled, and that's probably the one that's going to produce the best race result. So, you know, every, everyone's different. Some people want to go to races to experience the environment, and I don't think not having proper training environment or really specific training environments it should necessarily stop them from doing that but you know you also have people who want us who want to just meet their max potential in which case then it's like let's build a training plan around what you have access to and then pick a race that matches that uh and that's usually usually it's just a matter of kind of finding out where the person's motivations are coming from to begin with and uh, in the sport of ultra running, I think that ranges enough that it does it does uh, kind of behoove the coach or the person to kind of dig deep into that and figure out what it is. Are there any standout uh, negative reasons that someone would come to you with for why they want to compete, and would you advise them differently? I'm sorry, what was that? If they uh, if they come with a negative reason. Yeah, as if, like, if someone were, like, indulging in ego or um, something of that sort of going too hard too fast, like, have yeah, you ever you had know, to turn anybody away for that? Um, You know, a lot of times it, it's more or less, like, people are going to do what they want to do, but, uh, um, uh, you know, I, I, I'll i definitely have a hard conversation with someone if I think they're doing it for the wrong reason, um, because, you know, that's not sustainable, I think, like, you can you can run do you can do quite a bit. People are pretty amazing. You can do quite a bit with for the wrong reasons for quite a while before things go awry. But um you know, a lot of times it's it's as simple as saying like, well, like 
how do you want to feel about this, you know, maybe two or three years down the road. And, you know, what you're doing right now might seem like it's working now, but it's not necessarily going to be a positive, sustainable way to do it, you know, in the fourth or fifth year. So um, if you can kind of get them to back up and kind of look at it as a whole picture as opposed to, like, really in the moment, a lot of times you can – People are pretty sensible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so, does training for these races take up a large amount of your time? And yeah, you know, it, I'm. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It is, it is uh, a, a two-tiered uh, question. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say um, for the for someone who is interested in um, ultra running or transitioning from marathons to ultra running, um, would they as well? Would you advise that they spend a um, great deal of time training, or is there like a minimum effective dose? Yeah, no, that's a great question because you know ultra marathons are still, I think. Um, new enough or just like not a lot of like real detailed data collected on enough where there's not necessarily a path that you can point to that says like oh if you or you need to hit x amount of hours or miles per week or you'll never be good or you'll never meet your potential um i think with ultra marathons that's a very wide range there's been um really solid hundred milers who train on like 60 miles a week. Um, and then there's ones who will hit 150 mile training blocks. So like there's like some pretty big ranges there. And that's, that's amongst kind of like the tip of the spear group too. So when it comes to like folks who are more in the kind of the middle of the pack or are there because they want to enjoy the experience and kind of like really really be part of that community. Um, you can go a long ways with very little amount of time if you if if you want to. And you know, I work with a lot of different people who, you know, have a variety of different availabilities. So, you know, sometimes they're very busy at work, they have a family, you know, all kinds of things. And there there's a very, very small or uh finite window of uh of time they have and then usually it comes down to like working with what their schedule is because I look at it a couple different ways. Like one way is like stress is something that you can kind of acquire from all aspects of life, both physical, mental, emotional. Um, So to really tax someone with too much stress due to increasing their training workload when their lifestyle doesn't necessarily have the bandwidth to accommodate that, um, that's not going to get them to where they want to be. So then we kind of look at maybe other ways to kind of go about it with a little more of a low volume. Um, and, you know, so it, 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 it really kind of depends. I think like most people are probably doing at least 10 hours of running during their, their kind of big buildup weeks and stuff like that. It's, I don't see a whole lot of people doing too much less than that. Um, but I'm sure now that I've said that, someone will come out and say, oh, I do them all the time on four hours. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, usually the way I look at it is, like, if you give me the time you have, then we're going to try to focus on the workouts and the stuff that's going to get you most prepared for that event itself. So if it's someone who has got a real busy work week and they maybe only have 45 to 60 minutes a day to kind of get out for a quick run, great, we're going to do that, and then maybe we'll do, like, a back-to-back long run on the weekend or something like that to kind of more or less backload the training a little bit um, and try to focus the more stressful workouts away from the potentially stressful days on other ends. Mm-hmm. And if you were to set someone's uh, training schedule up um, and they had complete freedom to choose throughout the week, uh, would it be better to group it into the longest duration runs or pepper it throughout the week and then have, like you said, two back-to-back long runs on the weekend? Yeah, so are you saying, like, is it better to kind of spread out your your yes. workouts? Okay. Yeah, uh, you know, it, I think it depends a little bit on the event. I think I think when you when you get to, like, if you get to shorter events, you can be a little more liberal, I think, with spreading things out because, you know, sometimes every run is almost going to be as long or longer than the race itself. 
where I think it gets tricky is when you get into some of these really long runs where there's going to be a point in training where we want to stimulate to some degree what it feels like to be running for an entire day. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean running for an entire day, but it, it might mean, you know, running for a, doing your long run on tired legs or something like that. So sometimes in the early stages of training, it's a little more spread out. But then once we kind of get closer to the event itself and we're focusing on things that are very specific to the ultra marathon distance, that's where we might kind of put in some really big days. But then, you know, those big days require kind of big recovery too. So then it might look a little more lopsided where you're kind of putting a lot of your eggs into a few days of the week and then kind of changing directions for the other ones and focusing more on rest and recovery. Is running your singular pursuit for fulfillment, or do you have other things you're working on? Yeah, you know, I've got a lot. I'm, I'm pretty curious, so I like to kind of, like, keep a few irons in the fire, I guess. You know, I, I do a lot of running-related stuff or nutri- nutrition-related stuff, so I would say, like, you know, like, physical activity and health and nutrition are probably, like, the things that consume the most of my time and you know, I'm very content with that because those are things that really, you know, drive a lot of interest in me. Uh, so, I'll, you know, I'll do things like uh, I have a podcast now that's relatively new, actually, called the Human Performance Outliers Podcast. Um, yeah, and that one's fun. It's, it's actually the way we have it set up is kind of cool. It's a co-host, and it's me and this guy named Sean Baker, who Sean is, uh, he's on the opposite end of the spectrum I am. He's more along the lines of like power sports, short duration things like think like 60 seconds in duration. So he's doing a lot of the explosive power movement type stuff, and I'm doing all the long, slow stuff. <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, yeah. And we both have kind of a similar nutrition program. So we've been interviewing all kinds of people from like the world of nutrition as well as sports and, you know, people who kind of fix their health through diet and stuff like that. And, um, it's been a blast. So that's been a lot of fun just to kind of like, um, I look at it, you know, sometimes we'll be sitting there in a podcast. And I'm sure you can relate where you're like, you know, you're, you're talking to someone who is really knowledgeable about a specific topic and you, you almost feel like you're in school listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you end up, yeah. You, you, you end up, it's, it's a pretty cool way. If you're, if you're someone who likes to learn, I think podcast hosting is, is a great way to do that. Um, so yeah, I spent a lot of time with that. And then, um, I, one of my sponsors is ultra footwear and I also work for them too, by doing like events and things like that. And, uh, um, helping them out with some of their accounts kind of in the Arizona type territory. So I'll put on like group runs and things like that for them. Um, which is really cool because then I kind of get out in the community. So I don't necessarily feel like I'm just kind of training and, you know, hanging out by myself and becoming a hermit. So, <laughs> um, I like to try to, I like to try to do a variety of things so I never feel like I'm doing the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. And you, I imagine you get novel insight from, um, for running and just for your life in general from doing seemingly either unrelated things or just extracurricular things. For sure. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's pretty cool too when, you know, cause when I coach people as well, uh, and um, that's always a lot of fun to kind of see someone else's trajectory through a training block and into a race and, you know, ultimately feel like you helped help someone else. You know, it's, it's really interesting. Like, you know, I've been running and doing running related stuff for quite a while. So there's a lot of things that, uh, you know, I've just gotten has gotten so ingrained in me from repetition that you get to kind of this, like, you, you almost get to this position where you feel like everyone knows that, but then, you know, you, you work with someone who's new to the sport and it's like, they don't know all those things. So it's, it's pretty neat to see kind of someone, you know, who's just starting kind of learn the basics and learn like, you know, how to periodize a schedule of training and, you know, where do I put this workout or, you know, when do I know to rest and all, uh, some of these things that become a little more intuitive as you've been doing it for a while. It's really neat to see people at all the different stages throughout. Mm-hmm. I teach kids jujitsu and that's probably one of the most exciting things of my week, man. 
Oh yeah, I bet. Yeah, I, I used to be a, a teacher in middle for middle school and high school for a few years before moving out west, and um, it's a lot of fun working with kids. <laughs> they're they're always interesting and, and rarely predictable. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, they always keep you on your toes. <laughs> um, so you were a teacher, and now I hope this isn't too broken. Um, do you spend most of your day training or do you spend a good amount of your day working for like ultra? Um, I would say it's a pretty even balance. Um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough where most of my job related stuff, or at least the stuff that pays the bills, so to speak, tend to be things that I would probably do for free to some degree if I, if, you know, if I had the means to do that. So, um, so none of it really feels like a whole lot of work, but, um, I would, I, I usually divide my, my week kind of into thirds, I guess, to some, to some degree where, you know, when I'm in peak training, I might be up to 20 hours a week worth of, uh, working out and stuff like that. And then, you know, I might spend for a week like that, I might spend like 10 hours doing stuff for ultra footwear. Um, and then I'll maybe bump that up during some recovery phases where I'm not running as much. And then, you know, maybe another 20 hours doing things like, you know, recording podcasts, writing articles and coaching and things like that. And, um, I really like that because kind of like what I said before, it kind of puts me in a position where, I get enough physical activity where I don't feel like I'm kind of like sitting around for too long or anything like that. Cause I'm certainly moving uh, quite a bit when I'm in training and, um, but then like I'm not really doing anything for, for a really long stretch of time before kind of switching gears and, you know, turning to a different interest for a little while. And I think that kind of keeps things fresh and keeps me wanting to come back to those different things. Mm-hmm. Keeps it exciting. Mm-hmm, oh, for sure. Was this a very was this an intentional, um, I guess, situation that you found yourself in? I ask because when people consider getting into athletics, um, the question is, is like, what does that look like in the future? And I'm curious if people happen to find themselves by pursuing their own excitement in these unique situations where they can do what they love. Or was it an intentional construction that happened over time? Yeah, you know, it's it, the inten- the only intentional thing I would say is that I was very willing to chase things I was interested in, regardless of whether I was going to get paid for them right out from the beginning or not. So, like when I first when I first got out of college and you know was teaching, I I knew I loved running. I had just gone through like a collegiate running program and I really started to learn a lot about it during that. And I was really interested in kind of continuing that. So for like a few years while I was teaching, it was very much like, this is my favorite hobby to do. I'm going to invest as much time as I can into it. Just like anyone would like a, an interest or hobby they would have. And, you know, as I got further into that world, I started to get really interested with nutrition and, kind of started doing some deep dives into that. Um, and, you know, then coupled with a little, some, some, you know, good racing seasons, I was able to, uh, you know, I started having people ask me about, hey, do you coach and stuff like that? I got asked enough where I started doing some coaching, some online coaching. Um, and then, you know, so much of this stuff kind of relates to one another. And you have some good races, all of a sudden a handful more people want to be coached by you. So um, once that started to grow, it got to a point where between, like, my, like, racing sponsors to the coaching stuff, and then at that same time, you know, Ultra Footwear, they started to really grow as their brand kind of got more well-known. So I had some opportunities with them to kind of fill in the gaps, I guess. Uh, and so when they kind of came to me about about – working for them as well. It was kind of like, okay, all the pieces are kind of in place to more or less set up my own schedule and then be able to be flexible enough to be able to go to races whenever I want. So it was a little less like, um, you know, teaching was great. I love teaching, but the hard part about that was, you know, there is enough structured, like non-teaching time between weekends, holidays, and summer where, 
it's really hard to um it's really hard to I mean if the races happen to fall during those times then it's great. But if they don't then it's really hard to get off because it's really hard to justify taking off time to go to a race like overseas or something like that in the middle of the school year when you know, you're already taking a twelve week vacation <laughs> in the summer. So uh um some of it was just like kind of setting up the the job related stuff to a point where I could be a little more mobile or a little more flexible and kind of front load or back load work more or less. So um, I guess it kind of, I get to answer the question. It was, I think uh, one mistake people sometimes make, I think people should always chase their passions and chase their dreams. But I think people that do that and are successful are the ones who they, they have a plan B as well. Um, you know, because you hear all the stories of the people that are working out, but, like, you you don't always hear the stories of it not working out. So I think it is good to kind of have a backup plan, too, so that there's something to build off of or build from as well as fall back on if, you know, for whatever reason it doesn't work. So, um, you know, sometimes that just comes down to making some sacrifices in terms of what you're going to do with your free time so that when you are kind of – where I was when I was teaching, you know, I was working a full-time job, but then still training and stuff. So that that just meant like doing a little bit less other things other than running with my free time. And you even mentioned that with a race is having a plan B um, in terms of goals. And I think a plan B is important overall um, for any sense of longevity. And I think plan B could also inform you because whatever that plan B is is also another interest that you have. And um, I think Tim Ferriss, uh, he did like the book four hour work week and, you know, he's got his podcast, but he always talks about like originality is found at a cross street where, you know, one interest meets the other and mm, you're able yeah. to build your own niche from there. And even, you know, cause you can mix up your interests or if your plan A doesn't work yet, you're right. You have your plan B, but it's just having enough irons in the fire, I suppose. Because I find myself, like, I like running, um, I like writing, all these things that are seemingly unrelated. And as I pursue them further, it's like they kind of are falling into place. There are different options depending on how my life goes. However, they're kind of mingling together and creating something that even surprises me in the end. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. And it is interesting how when you kind of do that, it, they tend to kind of couple together in a in a meaningful way a lot of times and um yeah, sometimes there's a little bit of luck for sure in terms of timing and all that, but uh it's I think like when people work hard at stuff, it's pretty amazing what what they're capable of, especially when it's something they really believe in and really want to be doing as opposed to feeling like they have to be there. So um, it, it does go a long ways. I want to be respectful of your time. So I've got one last question for you. What does success look like to you? Success. Um, you know, for me, success, you know, this has probably changed too, like over time, because I think a lot of times when you get into sports and or get anything, like success can oftentimes look like I want to be the best at this or I want to, you know, reach this specific thing. But, you know, as I've kind of gone through the sport of ultra running and stuff like that, it's kind of evolved more into like, yeah, I would like to reach the pinnacle of some of these things of what I dream of or think is, think I'm maybe capable of, but ultimately I kind of want to enjoy the process along the way. So like, I'd rather be happy and enjoy it and maybe not necessarily achieve every goal rather than being completely miserable the whole way and then finally getting to this ultimate, like, kind of pinnacle of uh, what I think is possible for myself. Um, so I think success for me is, like, a holistic thing. Um, and it's also about, for me, a lot of it, too, is about kind of, like, introducing other people to some experiences that they would maybe not otherwise find and ultimately enjoy so, like, you know, it's, you know, I think one of the things that is the most meaningful for me is, you know, you can just be some person who reaches out to you on social media and asks some questions about, you know, 
how do I do this? And then, you know, you help them out a little bit and then that kind of gets that ball rolling for them. And then they reach out to you later saying, Hey, I kept doing this and now I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm running this race or I'm, I'm like, I, I'm back to a healthy weight or something like that. And it's just like, that's all, that's, that's, I think really cool when you see other people, uh, more or less saying that they got somewhere meaningful to them because of something you said or did. Um, so that's something that I think is that I really do tie to how I'll view, you know, how successful I am or will be kind of going forward in the sport. Where can people check out your podcast or, um, inquire about online coaching? Yeah. So, uh, the easiest way is like most things that I'm into are linked on my website at zachbitter.com. That's a Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R.com. Um, I'm pretty active on Instagram, which is just uh, at Zach Bitter, so at Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R as well. Um, but, yeah, the website's probably the easiest to find links to, like, the podcast, all my social media handles, and um, some of, like, the writing and stuff that I've done. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can check out Zach at ZachBitter.com or on social media at ZachBitter. And you can follow us on Becoming Human Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. If you like the show, please rate, review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you happen to listen to it. PSA to bald people. You don't want to get sunburned. Y'all need to pick up one of my hats. It'll keep your scalp nice and cool. Built-in technology that creates shade on your head. It's crazy, huh? Pick one up on the website, becominghumanpodcast.com. Get them while supplies last. It's hot. It's got a heat wave. Y'all ain't going to ride that like some silver surfer. Nah, I'm kidding. I love bald people. And people with long hair. (laughs) Y'all have fun out there. Bye.